before we look at that together. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you've ever received a gift that is so costly that you actually felt a little bit awkward to accept it. I've known people who've been to less affluent parts of the world and talk about being given at a meal more than the family would eat in a month. And I wonder how you would feel accepting that. Would you feel, um, uh, would you gladly accept the generosity? Or would you feel a little bit guilty? You know, some people feel guilty to accept what Jesus did for them on the cross. They say, oh, he suffered so much for me. And you know, to bring me to God. And it feels like a heavy burden. I don't know if you can identify with that. You see, the truth is that God wants us to accept what Jesus did for us on the cross with joy. But, uh, and, but at such a price, a lot of people think to themselves deep down, you think, oh, Jesus, it's too much. You shouldn't have. I can't accept this. It's too much. Well, of course, his suffering was very costly to him. Um, and it's right to feel sorrow for the sin that caused it. But there's no need to feel bad for him. Um, as if he could barely afford the price. As though he was doing something that was somehow against his will. No, he could afford to lay down his life for us. And he loves us and he gladly laid it down for us. So we're looking at John's account of the first Easter. Now last week, if you were not here last week, Andrew Page, um, who was with us last weekend for the Mark drama, he spoke brilliantly on Jesus' arrest. Do follow that up on the website if you can. I am going to cover some of the same ground today, but I'm also then going to go further into the story's next scenes. Now what we learn as John's narrative of Jesus' death unfolds is that Jesus was not the helpless victim of these events. No, he was their master. And we see it again and again. So my plan really is to lead us through John's account. And then I'm going to make two observations that will lead us to a wonderful conclusion. So the events. Well, supper is over. And Jesus steps forward to embrace his death. This is the hour of his destiny. This is the climax of his work. So he leaves the upper room and look at chapter 18, verse 1, if you still want it open. Jesus leads his disciples outside the wall of, the Jer of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. And he goes there to an olive grove, a garden that in the other gospels we know its name. It's his name is Gethsemane. And it's a regular meeting place for Jesus and his disciples, which is very significant as Andrew said last week, Jesus knows that one of his disciples is going to betray him, Judas. And he knows that Judas will be seeking him in likely places at the head of an arrest squad. But he, no, so he deliberately goes to this place, a known place, to make it easy for Judas to find him. Verse 3, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then sure enough, Judas comes 
So um, verse, uh, verse uh, 3, Judas came to the grove. Um, sorry, I just read from verse 2, didn't I? Verse 3, Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. I always think it's funny that they arrived with their torches to arrest the light of the world. It's ironic in what darkness they were. They couldn't see the sun before their eyes. They brought the torches and the lanterns. It's like holding a candle to the sun. Nothing. But that's what they did. Anyway, Roman soldiers, Jewish officials, they both arrived, possibly in their hundreds. Now, I haven't been arrested yet, um, but I know that the whole point of an arrest is that the person making the arrest is the one who takes charge of the situation. That's the whole point. They arrest you. They stop you. They impose themselves on the situation. But not here, because Jesus is the master of the situation. Look, verse 4, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he went out and asked them, who is it you want? It's remarkable. Because they don't confront him. No, he freely comes out from the trees, which of course could have covered his escape. He steps out. Verse 4, who is it you want? He asks the questions. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. And Jesus replied with those words, which Andrew, again last week, brought out very memorably. Jesus says, I am. I am to them. I am he, or the, the I am is more uh, close, closer to the, the Greek text, I am. It's a deliberate echo of the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush. Do you remember what the Lord said? I am who I am. Jesus, I am. And look at the effect it has on the arrest squad. Verse 5, the arrest squad draws back and falls to the ground the moment Jesus utters it. Why? Well, of course, Jesus is identifying himself with the eternal God. He's saying, I am, I am the eternal God. See, uh, but, but the thing was that as Jesus lived among us those 30 years in this world, those 33 years, it wasn't usually obvious that he was the eternal God. Because his identity was veiled. Do you remember what we sing at Christmas? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead did. His Godhead, his divinity, was veiled, covered, hidden in flesh. And uh, his divine identity was, was veiled. But the Father chooses this moment to draw back the veil momentarily to reveal what is always true about Jesus but is usually concealed. When Jesus spoke his name, the arrest party are suddenly confronted. The, the veil is torn away, and a blaze of divine glory flattens them there in that garden. It reminds me, what happens there reminds me of, um, of being a young dad. I couldn't do this now, by the way, um, or I'd break my back. Um, the old days of play wrestling with the boys when they were toddlers, and, of course, you would let them, you know, they'd run at you and you would let them knock you flat on the floor and think that they, they thought, we've got you, we've got you, we've got you. But at any moment, 
I was perfectly capable of just standing up and throwing the wriggling, giggling toddlers on the floor. I mean, obviously, with all of the health and safety checks um, done. You see, the power that is concealed is suddenly revealed. That's what happens in the garden when Jesus utters those words, I am. Boom. See, it's a flash of revelation. It confirms what's happening here, which is that Jesus is not the victim of these events. He's master of them, just as he is master over all creation. Well, the arrest force sort of dusts itself off, gathers itself, and again, Jesus takes charge. Verse 7, whom do you seek? Who is it you want? And again, he identifies himself, I am. Then he states the terms of his arrest. Does that happen very often when the police arrest someone? No. Usually it's the one making the arrest who gives the orders. But Jesus, verse 8, he orders them. He says, well, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. His disciples. Because the thing is, we have every reason to assume that the arrest party were going to take the disciples as well. But Jesus says, let them go. Jesus demands their freedom. And the soldiers accept the terms because he's the master of the situation. And then to stress his control over the events even more clearly, John just drops in. He says, this, do you know what? This was to fulfill one of Jesus' earlier promises, that he would lose none of those the Lord had given him, the Father had given him. And so... Jesus is in utter control. You know, the thing is about our promises, when we make a promise, um, our promises can never be sure, even if we make them with all the best intention in the world, because there are events beyond our control. But there are no events beyond Jesus' control, because he is the master of these events and is able to keep his word, even in the face of a squad of soldiers. Jesus' enemies could not thwart his promise. But at this moment, up steps his friend to have a go at doing exactly that. Cue Peter. Let's see if Peter can derail the whole thing. So Jesus has just secured his disciples' safety, but Peter immediately endangers himself. Remember, he draws his sword. He lashes out and slices off the ear of um, one of the high priest's servants. And of course, it's a miracle that that didn't... Pr can you imagine? Can you imagine how high-stress the situation is? It's like, you know, you see these films in American shootouts, and, you know, the, as soon as, the, as, soon as the, the guy goes to, you know, puts his hand anywhere near his thing, immediately the police are... And it would have been like that. But the moment Peter put his hand on the sword, immediately all of them would have been like... But it doesn't happen. Because Jesus has demanded their freedom required their freedom and they give way and Peter uh, Jesus as the master of events um, actually takes his friend aside and calmly rebukes him Peter put your sword away shall I not drink the cup my father has given me now this uh, God the father um, you see is, has a cup for Jesus to drink and nothing will stop him from drinking that cup now you ask what is the cup well it's not a literal cup, of course. It's a, it's a word picture. The Old Testament prophets 
often talked in terms of the, uh, in terms of, uh, when they were talking about God's judgment, often described it as a goblet. I love that word. As a cup of wine, foaming wine, and, and, the, and, the, and the judgment of God, that, that God forces the nations to drink this foaming goblet of wine, this judgment, this destruction, this wrath that is represented by the cup. And of course, that helps us to understand what Jesus' death is all about, because the whole point is that I should drink the cup, you should drink the cup, but instead, Jesus will drink it. So it's very dregs, so we don't even have to taste a sip. Jesus is taking this cup, and his enemies, well, they can't force him to drink it. He'll freely drink it. And his friends can't prevent him from drinking it because he's determined to do so. He's the master of the events and not their victim. But of course, that is not the way it appeared at the time. As Jesus is led from the garden to face the high priest's family. Now, the other gospel accounts tell us of Jesus' trial before the sitting high priest, um, Caiaphas. And uh, he was the one who was actually the duty high priest at the time um, that year. But John tells us uh, about what seems to have been a kind of a pre-trial confrontation between Jesus and I think what we can take as being the, who we can take as being the grumpy grandee, the power behind the high priest. He had been high priest in the past, Annas, the grumpy old bloke who was there behind the scenes, Annas. Jesus stands before Annas. And this family, by the way, Caiaphas, Annas, they're all the same family. They had made up their minds about Jesus already. As John reminds us um, there in verse 14, he reminds us of something Caiaphas had said a few weeks earlier. He had said, he said to the, Jew, the Jewish leaders, the other Jewish leaders, he said, you know, it would be good if one man died for the people. It's so ironic because what he meant by that was very different from what we read it as. What he meant was that it would be easier to keep the status quo if they just killed Jesus. Because if they just killed Jesus, then that would, then that would, that would um, stop here. Jesus was very popular, you see, and they would, that would stop people following Jesus and causing trouble um, with the Roman authorities. It was a political calculation. Let's just remove Jesus. But it's so ironic I love the way in John's Gospel, again and again, God puts truth into the mouths of his enemies. And they speak it with one intent, but God means something totally different because Jesus will give his life for the people. Just not in the way Caiaphas thinks. But the point is, as far as Caiaphas is concerned, he's already made up his mind. Jesus must be found guilty. The high priest's family has judged the case. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is not a trial that needs to come to a verdict. It's a verdict that has been passed that needs a trial to validate it. Wrong way around. Prejudged. Anyway, more of that in a moment, because first of all now, we've got to join Peter. And an unnamed disciple of Jesus, probably John himself, it seems, and they follow the arrest party into Jerusalem, and the unnamed disciple, um, probably John, seems to have connections with the high priest's family and manages to get access to Peter and himself into the high priest's courtyard. 
Now the scene is set for Peter's second blunder of the night. Do you remember in the garden? He's already let Jesus down through his foolhardy bravery. And now he's about to let Jesus down by his cowardice. Verse 17, a servant girl, the doorkeeper, says to Peter, Jesus, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? Expecting the answer, yes. I am not, says Peter. Contrast to Jesus, I am, isn't it? <laughs> I am not. Anyway, that's another subject. Peter is a case study in how to fall flat on your face as a Christian. He's a case study. Verse 18, it's so chilling. <laughs> Literally, I mean that word. It was cold. It's a metaphor, isn't it? It was cold. A chill is settling over Peter's life. It was cold. The servants and the officials stood round the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing there with them, warming himself. So the point is he's isolated from fellow believers. He's hiding in the crowd. Both factors lead him exposed, as they would leave us exposed as well. And he's walking where Jesus is probably not to tread. Jesus said back in chapter 13, he said, Where I am going, you cannot follow now. But Peter, in his foolishness, had thought, well, I know better than that. I can follow. And, of course, Peter has failed to hear Jesus' terrible prediction made that very night that before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. It was cold. And this chill has settled over the life of Peter. But back to Jesus in Annas' courtyard before returning to Peter in a moment. So Annas asks him about his disciples and his teaching. No, tell me about your, me about your disciples and your teaching, Jesus. As though that would make any difference to his outcome. Well, Jesus' response exposes the fact that Annas actually doesn't want to know at all. Verse 20 to 21, Jesus says, I've always spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. See, Annas should have known the facts already, but uh, like many of the other leaders, he had simply chosen not to listen. And as a result of that refusal, back in chapter 12 of John's Gospel, Jesus actually said, I'm not going to say anything more to these leaders. That's it. I'm zipping it now. Nothing. They're getting nothing. And true to his word, they get nothing here. Jesus doesn't say anything. Well, one of Annas's thugs strikes Jesus for having a bad attitude. He doesn't like his attitude. But of course, Jesus has only spoken the truth. Do they have a problem with the truth? It seems that they do. And it also seems that Jesus, who is actually the man on trial, is in fact the one passing judgment on Annas rather than the other way around. It's Jesus who's declaring Annas to be a man of the lie. It happened exactly. Um, and, and, and there, you see, Jesus is the master of these events. And then we see his mastery again, even more clearly, as we join Peter again. Peter's standing by the fire again, twice more. Peter is asked if he's Jesus' disciple. I am not, the second denial. I am not, the third denial. And then, verse 27, 
At that moment, the cock began to crow. Of course, exactly as Jesus said. The master of events. He's not the victim. Yes, he suffered. Of course he did. But he is not the victim of these events. He's the master of them all. Now, I said I'd bring this to two observations that lead irresistibly to a wonderful conclusion. So here we go. First, the two observations. One, Jesus' enemies didn't take his life. He gave it. Do you get this? It's not only that he didn't flee when he got the chance. He gave himself over to those who arrested him. Even though, of course, we've seen he could have destroyed them with a word. Now, this is only what he promised earlier in John's Gospel. Chapter 10, verse 11, for example. I am the good shepherd, he said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He is not passive here. He is active. He's not the powerless victim. He's the powerful savior. The cross is not an accident. It's the central purpose he came into this world to accomplish, and he embraces it with all his heart. You know, that insight, that simple truth, that the cross is not an accident, but at the heart of his purpose is a piece of information that has opened the eyes of many to the cross of Jesus. Suddenly, oh gosh. So hear that well. He, his enemies did not take his life. He laid it down. He gave it. So that's one thing. Here's another observation. Not only did his enemies not take his life, he didn't let his friends prevent his death. And uh, because his whole purpose was to save them through the death. So Peter tried to stop the death because he thought Jesus' death was a disaster. He thought it was a disaster for Jesus, for himself, for his friends, for the world. But Jesus' death is exactly what Peter needs. It's exactly what the world needs. We need Jesus to take the cup of God's judgment out of our hands and to drink it himself or else we can never be free. Peter's misguided heroics do not stop Jesus fulfilling the purpose that, that God the Father gave him, which was to suffer death on the cross for us, which he did gladly. What's the conclusion? It's very simple. Jesus must love us a lot. He has the power to do anything he wants, anything. He is the master of not just these events, but all events. What he wants to do with all that power is to lay down his life for us. He wants to drink the cup the Father has given him. He wants to take the cup from us. He must love us very much to act freely in this way. And for these reasons, he must do. And in addition, he must want us to enjoy the benefits of what he's done. Not with a sense of weight, burden of guilt, and how could he, I can't afford, he, he couldn't afford, I can't, how can I accept this great gift? No, he wants us to receive it with joy and with confidence. Ought we feel guilty about 
celebrating Jesus' death as if the gift was a push for him to afford, um, as if he was pushed into giving it. No. We don't honor him when we receive his gift with a sort of timidity, hardly daring to believe that such riches are ours, doubting that he really wants to forgive you, that he really loves me. His self-sacrifice is best honoured when we receive the freedom he won for us with confidence, with joy. He loves us a lot. Nobody took his life from him. He gave himself in love for us. I'm going to close with Paul's words from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will give us understanding of these indescribably wonderful things. We pray that you would particularly speak to those maybe who are new in faith today. Assure them that you love them. For those that are wobbling, wondering if God can really possibly love them, assure them today. For those who don't yet understand or grasp these realities, open their eyes, soften their hearts today to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus.